Welcome to the PPA Scotland Magazine Stories podcast. I am your host, Laura Kelly Dunlop. I am a journalist and the business manager for PPA Scotland. We are the people behind the Edinburgh International Magazine Festival and the PPA Scottish Magazine Awards. For Magazine Stories, I interview some of the most interesting and talented people working in our industry. I'll be unearthing anecdotes and advice that illuminate the publishing industry. It's a chance to learn from some of the best in the business. For this podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by the talented John Innes, the executive director of Think. John has been publishing since primary school. His incredibly varied career runs the gamut from Sunday school publications to launching the controversial and risque Bazaar magazine. At Think, John now oversees their Glasgow team, producing magazines and other content for the likes of Historic Scotland and the National Trust for Scotland. On Magazine Stories today, he talks us through the lessons he's learned along the way. Thank you for joining us on our through our online recording system for another socially distanced edition of Magazine Stories, John. Before we properly begin our regular interview, I want to take a moment to ask you about how the current coronavirus crisis is affecting your work at Think. I think it's it's a really interesting time at the moment. I think every day is different and every day you're starting again with a with a lot of the decisions that you might have made um, a few months ago. I think what what we found really amazing is the way that all of the staff and all of the teams have coped with the challenges. And while, you know, certain magazines and certain products that we were producing before um, have changed radically, pretty much anything that we've been doing in the travel sector, we've had to change um, overnight. All of the other teams, everybody who's working at home and working on client accounts and working on different projects um, have, have been really fantastic. They've They've worked their socks off. They've come up with new ideas. They've been really um, excited about trying new ways of working and new styles of content. Um, and so while it's an absolutely terrible time um, with lots of terrible things happening in the world, people have have worked together really amazingly. So so we've been really proud to work with, with our team. But every day is different from you know which postal service is open to which printers are working um, which means that for all of the teams we're continually on the lookout for our plan b our plan c and our plan d in any given situation um, and having to think about being innovative in the types of content that we produce so uh, you know they the, the word that everybody uses is unprecedented. It is unprecedented. There's never been a time like this, I think, in any of our lifetimes. Um, but it's it's also an interesting time. Mm. We're, I mean, we're now more than three weeks into lockdown. Are there things that you've learned in that time that might be useful for the future? I think so. I mean, to begin with, the first couple of weeks we we went into lockdown fairly early we sent people home around the 13th of march um i think probably about a week before most most people went down and for our first couple of weeks while we had home working processes in place for for a lot of people we didn't have them in place for the whole team and they weren't really ready for everybody suddenly to be using them all in one go so while the first couple of weeks were 
probably there was a lot of problem solving went on with the team. We were always trying to find the best way of doing things. Now, three weeks in, we're at the stage of making all of those better. So upgrading cloud platforms, making sure that internet connections are all right, even down to sort of saying to people, we've noticed you're using one of your dining room chairs to work on. Let's get a chair from the office or from a stationary supplier shipped to you at home so that you're sitting on something comfortable during the day. So, so it's gone from that, right, how do we get everything working to how do we make everything work better? Um, and I think, I think from what we've heard from all of, um, all of the other publishers and, and everybody I've spoken to is that same challenge of, okay, we know we can make things work, but how do we make them work better? And how do we make sure that we're creating the content that we create in the best possible way and that it works for all of our readers? And is even the content that we had on a content plan for the year still valid, or do we have to completely rip it up and throw it away? Um, we were just about to send uh, one of our health-related titles to print around the middle of March. Um, and we realized that we had a big feature about how to have a healthy holiday. So that one went out the window and we had to write a, a feature about being healthy at home pretty much overnight. Mm -hmm. But actually the end product is really, really good. It was a, a challenge to get there, but it, you, know, you have to respond to things that are happening around you. And has it changed what your clients want from you? Other than obvious things like that. I I think so. What we, so we've always, Think started um, as a company pretty much about 20 years ago. We were producing content that was really, I think when we started, 100% print-based. And the digital content has been growing over time. But in the last month, we're doing probably double what we were doing at the start of the year. So lots more online engagement content, uh, content more quizzes, more uh, online features, more emails. So, so yeah, the types of content, the channels that we're producing it for have changed, uh, but we're really just responding to our audiences and where they are. Mm, exactly. So to move on from from thinking about coronavirus, which I understand is a little difficult at the moment. And but it will all have changed by the time this comes out. <laughs> it probably will, yes, because it's changing minute by minute, obviously. Um, but I want to go back to, to kind of our, our normal magazine stories kind of conversation uh, and take you back to your very start in the industry. Tell us a little bit about how you managed to get a foothold in magazines. Well... I have beside me something, my, my very first start into the industry. This, I've got a, in my hand, I've got a copy of Jokes Monthly. That cover price is 2p. Um, and it's, it says a Fulton and Innes publication, 1981. This is something I produced in primary school for my friends. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> it's issue one. It, it has a free suite on the cover. Uh, and a 10p prize for joke of the month. So so even at sort of age 11, I was pretty much obsessed with publishing and magazines. I think that probably came mm -hmm. from um, probably first of all, IPC and DC Thompson comics um, through Marvel superhero comics to, to other forms of publishing. I was always really interested in, in print and content and telling stories. Um, so 
I produced that at school. I worked on lots of school magazines and really enjoyed that. But I, I couldn't really see at that stage how I was going to get into publishing. So like many people um, in those days, I went to university to do the thing I was good at at school, but not necessarily mm -hmm. what I wanted to do in later life. So I studied biology at Edinburgh University. And and I, pretty much after the first term, I knew I was going to wasn't going to be a biologist because it was I just wasn't interested. So I had a, had a lovely four years in Edinburgh studying biology, scraped through my degree, but thought <laughs> that I'd use it to get into scientific publishing and I'd go from there into consumer publishing. Mm -hmm. But what actually happened was I finished the degree and then I did a one year postgrad at Napier in sort of business admin. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It was it was a bit of marketing, a bit of finance, a bit of business. Um, and and then when I started applying for jobs, uh, the job I got in London was working uh, for a publisher called Scripture Union, who did Bible study material and Sunday school uh, publications. Um, and I went to work there in their production department. So I went to buy all of the print and organize um, print for these children activity magazines where I think we printed about 1.3 million um, every issue and children's color books and uh, storybooks and things. And it was a really great start to career because in production, you learn a bit about all of the other disciplines because you're working with the editorial team and the marketing team and the finance team. Um, and so it was a really good grounding. And, and my mother was very pleased that I was working for such a wholesome publisher or scripture <laughs> union as well. I'm sure she was. And after that, you moved on to John Brown Publishing, mm. of course, and worked on some some really fantastic titles, some of my favourites, including Viz and 14 Times. Uh, what was that experience like? It was great fun. I think I've had a really, I've had a, the great sort of fortune of working with really fantastic uh, bosses and owners of companies over the years. So so when I was at Scripps Union, I worked for a, a great production director called Andy Lee, who was forensic in, in looking at the process of doing things and how to make mm -hmm. it better and new technology. And, and we were, at that time, we were one of the first companies to move over to Mac. So I started, I think I had the very first Mac with a color screen in the office. And, and when you work with those people, you learn so much in, in a really short space of time. So when I started working for, for John Brown, I think there were about 35 people in the company um, and we published Viz 14 times. Um, we also published Gardens Illustrated and also lots of contract titles. So we did the mm -hmm. Virgin in-flight magazines. We did a magazine for British Rail, um, the Intercity magazine. We did Britannia Airways um, and lots of other clients like that and and working with John was just a fantastic experience every day was different and you had lots of um you were always given lots of responsibility and the opportunity to try different things um so I started working at John Brown as production manager so um it was still the days when at five o'clock we'd package up SciQuest discs and transparencies and send them off to um, the the repro houses and everybody would go to the pub and then we'd come back <laughs> at nine o'clock and the film would come back from the repro house and you'd count up the numbers of pieces of film you'd look at your chromalins and then you'd send them off on another bike to a printer um, and those days you know the days of film and chromalins are 
have long gone. But it was a time where you could experiment with magazines and titles and launch new things. Um, mm -hmm. And because we had a, a great selling product in Viz, I think it was selling over a million copies at the time, um, we had the resources to be able to launch new things and uh, try merchandise and T-shirts. We did a bit of TV work. And, uh, and John was just such a great person to work for. It was a, a, a great time and really interesting to work on all of those titles. You've mentioned launches. And so I do have to mention Bazaar, which <laughs> for those people who might not remember Bazaar, tell us a bit about its raison d'etre. Um, so Bazaar came from um, one of the members of the team coming in one day and saying, this, this new thing called the internet, shouldn't we be doing something about that? Um, <laughs> and so, so we, John, because I was, as well as doing production, I was, um, I built all the very first websites for, for Viz and uh, 14 Times. And, and John said, oh, look, you know about the internet. Maybe there's a magazine in this. Go and, go and have a look at it. So uh, myself and a, a friend, one of the editors, Fiona Jerome, um, went away and came up with a few different titles, one of which was Bizarre. And the idea was that we'd take some of the content of 14 Times, which was really popular at the time, um, and uh, but also have a bit of a a bit of an FHM spin to it. So FHM was the biggest selling men's magazine. And the idea was, okay, let's make it kind of trendy and kind of laddish, but also weird. And let's, you know, come up with something that that is surprising and different. Um, and at the time, I, I remember we launched the first issue on a budget of about £50,000, Mm -hmm. which you could never do now. Um, you could spend that just getting a new title into Smith's in the first place. But but we launched the title pretty much on a guess. We had a little bit of um, reader research that we'd done. Um, we had a really, actually, we had some, the one piece of reader research that was really useful when we were creating that title was we produced a dummy and, and it was quite out there. It had lots of interesting left field content that you probably wouldn't want to show to your mother. Um, and, <laughs> and the researcher that we got in talked about permission to read. And he said, look, the, one of the problems you have with this title is that while people might enjoy it, and while it has a gulp factor, so we always used to say that we really wanted every issue to have something in it that somebody would gulp at and then want to show mm -hmm. their friend, because it was the weirdest picture they'd ever seen or the most um, bizarre sport or weird phenomenon um and and he said that you, what you have to do with the title is make make it something that other people want to engage with or something that people don't feel embarrassed about reading and that really mm -hmm. influenced the final product that went to print and went in smiths um so it was great fun working on something like that and i think I think to begin with, it sold about sixty or seventy thousand copies, um, which at the time we were quite pleased with, but was nothing compared to Viz. Um, but now, again, you know, seventy thousand copies. I think you'd be you'd be quite pleased if you were selling that on the news trade these days. You have mentioned how nice it was to work for for John Brown, um, and we've been lucky enough, obviously, to welcome him along to PPA Scotland's flagship event, Magfest. He does have a wealth of knowledge, as we were lucky enough to hear. So I'm interested about what lessons that you carried away from, from working with them. Uh, there was something that, that John always did that, that I still do to this day, which was 
having a post-mortem at the end of every project. So John always got the key people on every issue of a magazine or if it was a website or an event together immediately after the, the thing had finished. And we talked about what had went well, what we could do better and how we could make the whole process of producing it better in the future. He was always interested in in doing things differently and letting everybody have their voice on a project. And so now we do exactly the same thing at Think. I, I sit the, the entire team down now at the moment. It's uh, via Zoom. But mm-hmm. we talk about every project and we talk about uh, the high points and the things that we could have done differently so that everything that we do continues to evolve and continues to get better. Uh, so John was fantastic at doing that. And he was also somebody who was very keen at at giving latitude to the younger members of the team. So uh, the the thing that John always did was listen to people's voices. So he would always make sure that that everybody on the team had the opportunity to pitch new ideas because that's where the future was going to come from. So mm-hmm. the fact that I was somebody working in the production department and pitched the idea for a magazine that then a couple of months later was published, that's that was kind of endemic at John Brown. It was, you know, let's come up with a really good idea. Let's test it. Let's try it. And if it works, great, let's do more of it. Fantastic. That is a really good lesson. And I am, I mean, I think still relatively unusual to be so accepting of listening to ideas from younger people as well. So that's that's pretty good. (laughs) Well, I think you have to. I mean, sometimes it's very easy if you've been in the business for a number of years to think that you know the solution to every problem or that, that your way of doing it is the right way. But actually, if you're going to build the staff of tomorrow and if you're going to build a staff that can really run with projects, then you need to let them try new things and you need to let them make their own mistakes because it's only by doing that that you learn. And actually, something that might have been a mistake for me five years ago might work perfectly well for somebody today if they just do it slightly differently. So mm-hmm. so I think you've got to be willing to give people the latitude to try new things the whole time. Mm-hmm. So when we move on by 19, oh, you were, you took a couple of detours in the nineties mm. uh, after John Brown into book publishing and visual communications for Debenhams. Um, neither of which seemed to have lasted very long. <laughs> um, but did, did you learn anything from those different disciplines? Yes. So I worked, I worked at Debenhams, uh, well, before that, Dorling Kindersley um, mm-hmm. in what used to be called packaging. So packaging was essentially where Debenhams would take some of their archival content and they'd turn it into a, a picture book about kittens or a calendar about happy dogs or something like that. It was <laughs> it was only it was essentially reusing that content, but they might have been creating it on behalf of a German publisher or somebody in Australia. It was always about, you know, it's not about we're going to create our book and then publish it in Germany. It's can we use some of our content for somebody else? Um, and I did that for a while. That was really interesting um, and an interesting world to work in. But the book publishing world is quite slow. Uh, you come up with an idea, you produce a book, 
it takes about six months to print it. It then has to go into review. It sits in warehouses. Then it goes out to bookstores. And you never, it takes a long time to get feedback in the book publishing industry. Um, and, and it's a slow process because often you're printing in Singapore and they, have, they take a, a couple of months to come back into the country. So, so that was fun. But uh, but then I went to work for Debenhams um, in their uh, visual communications department. And we'd worked with Debenhams when I was at John Brown creating their magazine. Um, and so it's quite a natural fit to go and see how things worked from the client side. And what it taught me was that I never wanted to work in retail again uh, because <laughs> everything depended on, depended on what they'd sold the previous week. Uh, all of the directors would come in on a Monday morning and they'd look through all of the sales figures and somebody would say, oh, my goodness, we haven't sold enough umbrellas. It's been far too sunny. We've got too many umbrellas in the warehouse. And they're in a slot where the new bikinis are going to be fitted into next week. So we need to get rid of the umbrellas. So you'd go down to the designers and tell them to stop everything they, they were doing and come up with an umbrella promotion by 2 o'clock. And you'd sign it off by 3 o'clock. And you'd send it to print by 4 o'clock. And then you, you essentially threw money at printers to get all of the merchandising and banners and leaflets into store by Thursday. And mm -hmm. while that was quite exciting for the first couple of weeks, you realized that there was nothing that you could really do to make it any better because it all depended on the weather the previous week, what else was going on in store, and the purchasing decision that somebody had made a year ago when they bought the umbrellas to go into the store. So it was, it was fun, but it was frustrating because it all depended on the previous week's sales so you could mm -hmm. you never really felt like you could make it any better um, so when my my six months contract ended at Debenhams I, I happily said goodbye and moved on <laughs> uh, to the British Film Institute to work on on their film magazine Sight and Sound um, and I stayed there for about five years working on that. Is that as glamorous a job as it sounds? It's not glamorous at all. I thought I'd be at premieres every week. I thought there'd be freebies coming through the post the whole time. The main reason is because by the time you get to a film premiere, everything has happened. The magazine's done its piece. We've interviewed the director and all the glamorous stuff happens for the TV people. But the poor film journalists really just end up in screening rooms in the middle of Soho at two in the afternoon uh, without even a bit of popcorn or a, or a fizzy <laughs> drink to, to help them on their way. Um, the life of a film critic is, is sitting in darkened rooms, sometimes with a pen with a little light on it so they can be making little notes as the film goes along. Um, but I, I never got to go to any premieres. I think I got to go to a London Film Festival film once in my five years. Um, but it was a really exciting um, industry to be working in. There were lots of interesting interviews happening. We did... Um, we did interesting polls. We talked to really interesting directors. So it was a fun magazine to work on, but it wasn't glamorous at all. Um, I think probably my favorite thing was we used to, I remember when I started at Side and Sand, I said, well, what, what, uh, what big lists have we got coming up? What big promos and, and landmark issues have we got? And they said, oh, well, we do, a, we do a, a poll where we talk to film directors and film critics and we get their 10 best films of all time and then we make a big list. And I said, oh, well, what month's that happening? And the editor said, no, no, we do it every 10 years. Uh, so it's happening in, in probably about 20 months. <laughs> and so it was, <laughs> it was a whole different world. But I can remember speaking to 
as part of that poll, we were talking to Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino and, and people who directed films back in the 50s. And we had all of the, the film critics. Mark Commode wrote for us, as did uh, Mark Cousins, um, mm. lots of great journalists and a, you know, a great little magazine to work on. What, what do you think are the essential skills of a publisher? Because it's, um, it's a rule that's maybe not as well understood as an editor. It, it doesn't tend to be as many films about it, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, so the, the publisher is really the person who's there to make sure that, that the team delivers what they're meant to. So uh, it's a bit finance. It's a bit content related. It's marketing, it's subscriptions, it's printing, it's production, it's budgeting. A good publisher has to have a good understanding of every part of the process, how it all works together, and have one eye on the content team and one eye on the reader, because it's all about making sure that you're creating content that works for you as a publisher in terms of what you want to say or the voice that you have. It's got to work for the reader and then it's got to work for the advertiser as well because every mm -hmm. magazine business is a mixture of different income streams. Traditionally, you had subscriptions, you had newsstand and advertising and different titles would have those in different percentages and the titles that had a big subscription base were always in a great position because they knew what money was coming in the ones that were based in advertising were always a bit more precarious because it depended on whether their subject matter was hot or that industry was particularly hot that month. It's changed quite radically now. Um, although there are still titles that, that are mainly um, supported by advertising, the ones that have got a, a strong future are the ones that can build a base of subscribers. And to do that, you have to do it through good content. There are lots of mm -hmm. people out there who, who have deals that are based around low-cost subscriptions. So five copies for, a pack for five pounds um, is a standard one that people use to bring in readers. But actually, you find that the readers that you bring in at those rates are not terribly interested in the content matter. And so they disappear after, after the end of their special offer uh, runs out. So, mm -hmm. so a good publisher is making sure that the magazine or the online content that you're producing is right for the market that you're aiming for. They have to have a vision, a vision for the future of the title, um, both financially and um, and content-wise. And they have to be looking ahead 18 months to see where that title might be and where you want it to go. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean saying we need to make this title as consumer friendly as possible because we want a huge number of people. It may be that there's a specific niche or in what we do now at Think, a specific membership group or audience that you're aiming for mm -hmm. as well. Um, but that publisher in a perfect world is a mixture of all of those things. Traditionally, publishers used to come out of advertising teams because that's where people think about money. Um, more and more they come from editorial or you get sort of interesting mixes of people who are editors and publishers at the same time. But you need to have an understanding of content and process just as much as you need to understand the numbers 
and the metrics and to be able to measure your audience. Mm. You've mentioned Think there, and obviously you've now been there almost 15 years, having joined mm. After Sight and Sound. Um, you started in London, but it wasn't long before you opened their Glasgow office. Um, I'd be really interested to hear about how that came about. Mm, sure. Well, thanks to the PPA, really. Um, I was on one of the PPA committees. Uh, I think at the time it was IPAC, the Independent Publishers Advisory Council or Committee. It's a long mm -hmm. time ago. Um, and I was on that committee as, as Sight and Sound. And uh, it was a really good little committee of small um, publishers who were just starting out or people who just had one title. So um, I think The Spectator were involved and um, New Statesman, people like that. Um, and I was there, as I said, with Sight and Sound. And then Ian McAuliffe, who started Think, was there representing Think. Um, Ian started Think in 1999, and his vision was to create a, a publisher. So back then we were called uh, contract publishers, now probably content marketing agencies or just content agencies. Um, mm -hmm. His vision was to create a, a business that was producing content for membership organizations that was every bit as good as the content that you could buy on the news trade. Because we looked at charities and membership bodies and thought that the work that they were producing was good, but not great. And actually it was competing with all of the other forms of media that those people were interacting with. And so it had to be as good as a newsstand magazine. Um, mm -hmm. So so Ian I met through IPAC, and again, Ian's uh, like John and, and Andy back at, at Scripture Union. Ian is a, is a great person to work with. He's got a great vision. He's got a real drive, and he's set up a business that, that has just continued to grow and grow since 1999. Um, so I started um, Ian and, and his business partner, uh, Tilly, um, who back then was his business partner and now is his life partner, which is a fantastic <laughs> thing to have seen. Um, they were they were running the business and they were also running all of the accounts, um, all of the client accounts at the same time. Uh, they brought me in as publisher to work with some of the clients so that we could also concentrate on new business and processes and, and all the other things we were doing. Um, so when we started, I started in the London office um, producing titles for lots of different clients, everybody from the Ramblers Association through to uh, Whale and Dolphin Conservation, Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, uh, titles that, that a lot of them were connected by nature, the outdoors. Uh, we worked with Soil Association for a while. And actually, one of the very first titles that they produced was the Ecologist magazine. Mm -hmm. So we had a mixture of titles, mainly membership and supporter based, but some which had a new stand presence as well. We worked with uh, the people who produced Current Archaeology, uh, which was a new stand title, but we designed it and sold the advertising on their behalf. So um, the company was always growing. And over time, we've we've expanded the clients we're working on and the clients that we're working with have got bigger and bigger and the jobs that we produce for them um, have got bigger and bigger. So while for almost everybody we work with, there's still a print magazine element to that. We're now producing online content, video, Facebook, email, um, commercializing events and conferences, really whatever our clients need, 
we're producing on their behalf, but we're always trying to do it to the same quality as a newsstand magazine or a commercial piece of online content that they would interact with. Um, I think that's really one of the sort of main um, foundations of the work we do at Think is to say that the content we produce matters to people, it matters to individuals, and it has to be every bit as good as something that they'd pay for because it has to have value and they mm -hmm. have to... I think a lot of the time when you're, when you're producing something for your reader, whether it's a newsstand magazine or whether it's something for a supporter or a member, you're building a kind of contract with them. So you say that if you give me some of your time, if you give me half an hour with, with the latest issue of Uncut or Empire or Connect for Crohn's and Colitis or Be Healthy mm. for Benenden, if you give me some of your time, I'll give you something that you will enjoy or you'll find interesting or you'll learn something from or will help you in your career. Whatever the, the subject matter is, it's a, it's a deal. And if you don't honour your side of the deal, then people won't come back. So you've talked a bit about there about the relationship with the reader. Um, I'm also really interested about the relationship uh, and any advice that you might have about working with clients. Um, a lot of it's about making sure that that you understand what the aims and objectives of each project are before you start. Um, if if we work with with somebody like Historic Scotland then we know that the main aim of their membership publication is to get people to use that membership more. So mm -hmm. if they visit more Historic Scotland properties, then they're more likely to renew. And so their membership scheme works. Uh, for somebody like Whale and Dolphin Conservation, they've signed up because they're, uh, they're supporting a whale or a dolphin. They've adopted it. They're paying a monthly adoption um, to help the society keep up their work and look after the creatures um, or to make sure that they're safe in the wild and to end captivity, uh, the various aims that WDC have. Again, that title is there to deepen the relationship with the supporter, tell them more about what the organisation is doing and so keep them close, build a bond with them. Um, mm -hmm. And for every organization we work with, the challenge is making sure that the content we create is relevant, timely and interesting. And if you understand what the client's aims are for each piece of content, and when you you plan an issue or plan a content, uh, a matrix of online content throughout the year, you're always ticking things off against the main aims that you want to achieve. And I think for every piece of content you write and create, you have to think about what you want people to do once they've read it. So do you just want them to feel happy and have learned something? Or do you want them to follow it up online? Or do you want them to fill in a petition? Or do you want them to, um, to look for more information about some of the other services you provide? It's all about making sure that every piece of content has a reason, but that you're not just always on broadcast. So our role often is to say to our clients, okay, well, we know the message that you want to communicate. Let's look at it from the other end of the spectrum and work out why the member or the audience should be interested in that message. And let's mm -hmm. find a way of making what you want to say something that somebody else wants to read. And in, in leading the team up in Glasgow, I, um, I'm, I wonder, what, how would you describe your style of leadership? 
Um, we so when we started the Glasgow office um, in two thousand and seven, it, it was just me in my spare room at home, and <laughs> and weirdly, in a way, it's gone back to that because <laughs> everybody is in their <laughs> spare room at home. Um, luckily, we've just got more people working in spare rooms at home. Um, so we started uh, working with Historic Scotland, and we also worked with um, the regional development agency in the northeast uh, of England, and then we had a couple of other projects uh, that we worked on. And what we've tried to do in Glasgow, and what I've tried to do, is build a team that that are passionate about what they do, that care about producing quality work, but also listen to what our clients want and what the advertisers want and what the members want, and respond to it with content that is really top-notch, is on target, is interesting, is different, and hopefully content, as I, as I was saying earlier, keeps on evolving, keeps on uh, mm-hmm. trying new things so that we don't just think, oh, well, we've, we know what that project is, so we just have to replicate it every three months. It's about looking forward and saying, how can it change? How can it be better in the future? Um, mm-hmm. And how can it it keep on being relevant to its reader? Because it's very easy. You can sometimes see it with, with other projects. And you can see titles that sometimes publishers have kind of given up on or they're in managed mm. decline. It's kind of, it's all right. It does what it does. And so we just do it every month. Um, I don't think you can ever do that or you should ever do that because our readers are always changing our audience is changing you've got to continue to change with them and i think the moment Mm. that you start assuming you know the answer to a question you've started to lose the audience because you head in different directions Mm. talked a little bit about the future there um after coronavirus passes which hopefully it will do at some point um, what's on your radar for the future? What are you thinking um, are, are new trends that we should be looking towards? Um, I think for us, magazines are not just about print. And I think it's it's really important for us to to make sure that when we're talking to an audience, we're talking across different channels. Print still works amazingly well from all of our clients. Um, but with increasing costs, increasing postage, um, we're often reducing frequencies and upping paginations. So mm-hmm. uh, we, if we're producing a title for somebody, um, this one title we produce um, in the, the health sector, where we produce 365,000 copies of the magazine, but that means we've got a postage bill of £150,000 every time we send it out. That's a lot of wow. money that just suddenly disappears. And so more people are, are thinking about frequency, but at the same time, not just, oh, let's produce fewer copies of the magazine. It's it's about, well, how can we produce something that makes the that gives the best result for the final audience, which might be... Mm-hmm. Um, lowering the frequency slightly, but increasing the pagination and at the same time creating um, a suite of digital content that goes alongside the print product so that mm-hmm. you're always in people's lives. You're, 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 you're building a relationship that's more than just every month this thing comes through the post. It's, 
it's all about giving your audience different ways to engage with you. So, so I think at the other end of coronavirus, we'll be producing more digital content than we were a month ago, um, which is fantastic. Um, we've, I think we'll be more relaxed about launching things without having having spent months and months working out whether they're on brand or they're going to work or or they're sustainable. I think what this has done is given everybody a latitude to try new things. And if it doesn't mm -hmm. work, then then we'll stop it. It doesn't really matter, but let's try it. Let's get something out there. And you can see it in things that other publishers are doing. So the Idler magazine, which has been going for, for 20 years, have started doing weekly Zoom in conversations with, um, and other titles are doing meetups with editors and they're doing um, series of emails that will last for three months and then disappear because it's all about creating fresh content and testing it out, seeing where the audience mm -hmm. is. So so we, I'm sure at the other end of this, we will be producing a lot more email content. Um, and actually for a fairly old medium, email is getting more and more exciting every year. There, there's just so much you can do in terms of automation and personalization so that you're creating mm. content that's that's really bespoke to the person who's reading it. Um, and and having those that sort of portfolio of channels that includes print, email, online, online quizzes, you know, lots of different content, events, whether they're real life or virtual. Um, it's about making sure that you've got a program of content that's sustainable. When you take the long view of your career, is there a one moment that stands out for you, John, that you're most proud of? Oh my goodness. Um, or maybe a couple. Yeah, I mean, there, over the years, I've been involved in, in so many different titles um, that it, it's hard to pick any one out. But you can see moments with each title where you've you've relaunched something and it's worked really well. Or um, you've got a, a letter from a reader that tells you that they'd be lost without your title. In fact, we had one today. Um, we produced a magazine called Be Healthy. And at the start of the year, we produced a feature um, it was you know, a fairly standard magazine one, the 50 ways to be healthy in 2020. And somebody mm -hmm. wrote to the magazine today and said, you know, I got the magazine. I, I read this back in January, but I picked it up yesterday at home as I was tidying. And I realized there were lots of ways to be healthy now that I'm stuck at home. And I found it really helpful. And it's made me feel much more positive about being at home. And so moments like that beat, you know, awards, they beat sort of launching new magazines. It's all about making sure that you've created something that's really personal to to an individual and and works for, for large numbers of people as well. Ultimately, content's king. Thank you for joining us for another edition of PPA Scotland Magazine Stories. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe at your podcast provider of choice. And we'd really love it if you could leave us a review. Maybe you could even tell a friend or send a tweet. Next week, we're going to be joined by the longtime editor of The Skinny magazine, Rosamond West. She'll be telling us about a decade of helming one of the country's most important cultural voices 
I do hope you'll join us then. I have been Laura Kelly Dunlop and this has been PPA Scotland Magazine Stories.